Hello, everyone. Coming right up, I'm going to be having a conversation with American intellectual and writer Frederica Matthews Green. We're going to discuss what the abortion wars have done to American politics, how the sexual revolution has transformed relationships between men and women, and what we can do going forward. That's coming right up. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to Frederica Matthews Green, an uh, Eastern Orthodox writer whose work I was first introduced to by my work in the pro-life movement. She has some extraordinarily powerful writing on abortion that first led me to look more into her work. Just to give you a bit of a background on her, she holds a degree in theological studies from the Virginia Theological Seminary. Her husband is Father Gregory Matthews Green, an Eastern Orthodox priest who was a signatory of the Baltimore Declaration. She converted to Orthodoxy from the Episcopal Church in 1993, along with her husband and some parishioners from her former parish. She writes about Orthodoxy quite frequently, but has also written a lot about abortion and the sexual revolution, which is why I invited her on the Van Maren Show to, to try puzzle through some of the issues that we face in today's culture and to figure out what we can do going forward, because there are, as all of you know, a lot of issues that are very difficult to puzzle through. And I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I guess uh, the question I was going to start off with is, is just to give us a bit of background on yourself. I know a lot of pro-lifers are familiar with your name because your quotes have, have popped up a lot of places, even on pro-choice websites, interestingly enough. Um, but maybe just give uh, give our uh, our listeners and our viewers a little insight in, into who you are. Yes. Uh, well, my name is Frederica Matthews Hyphen Green, and you might tell from that that I was a feminist when I got married back in the nineteen seventies. In fact, my husband on our first date said, "If I ever get married, I would want to take my wife's last name and hyphenate it to my last name." So we're both Matthews Greens, the only ones in the world, as far as I know. Okay. So I was, I was an enthusiastic convert to feminism from my first year of college onward. And um, of course, that slightly preceded Roe v. Wade. So when um, they legalized abortion in New York, and it wasn't legalized anywhere else close to our college, I accompanied a friend of mine up to New York City to have her abortion. I really thought nothing about it. And I continued to be pro-abortion for many years until I read an article of all places in Esquire magazine. It was the January 1976 issue. And um, I believe I'm not the only person. In fact, Peggy Noonan indicated she read the same article. It had the same effect. Okay. It was called What, what I Saw at the Abortion. And it was all a right. doctor's. You've read it. It's very short. It's just yes. two pages. You can find it online. His name is Richard Seltzer. And he talks about this mid, mid-pregnancy abortion. The doctor inserts a syringe into the woman's abdomen as she's lying on the table and injects it with prostaglandin. And then Seltzer says he sees the syringe begin to shake back and forth as the baby is going through its death throes. And that was so shocking to me because there wasn't any sonograms then. I, I thought what I used to say, which is it's just a blob of tissue. 
I thought it was absurd to be sentimental about this blob of mucus, basically. And this image and Seltzer's valiant description of the baby fighting for its life, it turned me around because I was not only a feminist, I was anti-war, anti-death penalty, vegetarian, anti-violence. There is never any need to use violence to solve social problems. And that was exactly what I was doing with my feminism. I'd embraced nonviolence in every other area of my life, but I'd made an act of violence necessary at the center of my feminism. It really shook me up. How did you go from, so you, you went from being a, a, um, a pro-abortion feminist and then you, went into, you became a pro-life writer. Maybe just describe that transition for us before we get into some of these um, more in-depth topics that we're going to discuss. Sure. So um, let's see, 1974 was when I had my conversion to Christ. And that was a real Damascus road, you know, from somebody who was anti-Christian and a blasphemer and tried to undermine the faith of other Christians. I had a very dramatic conversion experience. And, but it was still another two years before I became pro-life. Um, I think what was fortunate was that my, my setting was changing. It was right when I graduated from college. So I was saying goodbye to all my old friends. And then after my conversion, went to Episcopal Seminary with my husband and made new friends there. And then I read that article uh, two years later in Esquire. So the transition was a little bit easier. I very gradually shed my, my um, uh, feminist convictions. It was more, you know, I think it was more of an identity thing or a fashion thing. It was very, very cool to be a feminist. And I noticed this much to my discouragement over the many years that I was a pro-life advocate and doing debates and so forth, was that the audience was, their mind was made up. There was nothing you could do. Nothing I could say would reach them because they had a commitment to be pro-choice out of peer pressure. That, right. that being the fashionable opinion and the accepted opinion, the cool and groovy opinion, um, they, they had already closed their minds. In fact, I, at a debate once, I said, is there anybody here who came with their mind not already made up? And two people raised their hands. And I said, I give up. I'm not doing, this is mud wrestling. This is just entertainment. I'm not going to do this anymore. So I, um, probably around 2000, I stopped writing as prolifically about the pro-life causes I used to. Um, I think that's about the time that the culture's focus kind of shifted. We were no longer talking about pro-life as much. There, it like the, the controversy du jour became the, the gay rights movement. Right. And so, the, yeah, the spotlight moved off pro-life. I wasn't getting as many invitations to speak and write as I used to. But uh, in my heart, the flame burns true. I'm still 100% pro-life. It is perhaps the most important thing to me after my Christian faith. And of course, it blends very well with that. One of the things I wanted to ask you, though, um, because you've been involved in analyzing the issue for such a long time, is that abortion has sort of animated American politics now since 1973. You can make the case, and several scholars now do, that if Roe v. Wade hadn't decided, had been decided the way it was, American politics would be a lot less polarized because you would essentially have, you know, California, New York, Massachusetts having done one thing 
Mississippi, Alabama, the Dakotas doing their own thing, and you'd have a more of a sorting out uh, in the country. People who didn't want to live in really pro-abortion states would have simply moved to pro-life states. But now, because you have this top-down imposition, elections are, are, are completely dominated by the selection of justices. Uh, I was, just as an example, I was at a, a Trump rally in Charleston. I went to find out what everything, what the hubbub was all about, because I, I actually really could not understand why, why people liked him. And he actually said halfway through his speech, this was in Charleston, he just said, uh, a lot of you don't like me very much. A lot of you don't think that I'm conservative enough, and that was me. He said, but you want the Supreme Court, so you're going to vote for me anyways. Um, he was one of the first politicians to say the quiet thing out loud. But what that statement I thought really emphasized was the extent to which abortion now drives almost everything. There was a, a line in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago uh, where they said that um, Trump's tweets drive young Christians away and abortion brings them back, which I think is pretty much the perfect summary of the extent to which um, nobody's going to vote for somebody who believes a baby can get killed all the way up until birth, um, regardless of what the other guy is all about. And so to some extent, even if you are you know, still a Trump skeptic, um, people voting for Trump is more of a reflection of his opponent than it is a reflection on himself. What, what is your take on how abortion has come to animate American politics? What effect do you think that's had based on your years of writing on this issue? I think that's a very good analysis. And um, one of the things I think people don't consult very much is actually we had that state of affairs before Roe v. Wade. The first pro, pro-abortion laws were passed in New York, California, some of those um, some of those states, I remember people saying before Roe v. Wade, it's only a handful of states, maybe eight of them in 19, by 1972, but they represent 50% of the population. Right. And so that was, you know, perhaps a, a sign that we were already fairly divided as a country about those issues. Uh, we may have had all the land, but we didn't have all the influence. And, uh, you know, culture trickles down, fashionability, peer pressure, it trickles down from the top. Um, I, I think that we're probably heading toward a much worse time as colleges have become more and more in lockstep about so-called progressive values. And our, um, our new insect, you know, imperators will be imposing on us for many decades. So anyway, going back to before Roe v. Wade from 1965 onward, um, the thing that people always said was, if a woman's determined to have an abortion, she will have one. And after all, it only, it only takes driving to another state. I don't know how often that was done, how many women continued their pregnancies because it was another state. But as I said at the start, I went all the way from South Carolina, Charleston is my hometown, all the way from South Carolina to Manhattan to be with my friend when she had her abortion. Um, there was already polarization, but I do believe it's gotten much worse. And I think you're very right that we've been squeezed into a corner where we have to vote for someone, even if we dislike him very much for many other reasons, solely because of the Supreme Court justices and judges all over the country. When I was at the March for Life this past uh, January, I saw a sign somebody was carrying that said, Trump, the most pro-life president ever. And I thought about all those years, decades, that I stood on the mall in the snow and listened to a pre-recorded message 
from a so-called pro-life Republican president. He was the first one to ever actually show up. It kind of spins, you know, all your all your thinking to happen. No, it, it's interesting you you say that because I, I had a similar reaction. Um, those who have read my, my my columns on this issue will know that I have not been a fan of, of Trump personally. And I remember when I when I, so I've I've watched a lot of his speeches. I've gone. I, I went to one of his rallies purely to find out what the big deal was about. And at the time, this is this is in 2016. I actually kind of felt um, like it was like like being at a party where you're the only sober one and everybody else is drunk. Like I knew everybody was having a genuinely real experience, but I couldn't access that experience or I simply wasn't willing to do what it took to get me there. Um, and, and it was, it was really interesting, but it was, it was actually Trump's speech at the March for life. That was for the first time where I really got what everybody else felt about him. Um, like there was still like a bit of a, a, a divide there, but while, when he was sort of pointing at the crowd and saying, thank you, like I have so many friends in, in the American pro-life movement who have been fighting for their whole lives since before Roe for 40 to 50 years. And to have somebody come out of the Oval Office and point to them and say, thank you. Like, that's not nothing. Um, that's a really big deal. Uh, and so when, when people, and when people say things like, well, that was just pandering, um, that doesn't really make a difference because when a politician panders to a, a crowd, it means he thinks he has to. So even if you're going to take the bare, the bare, the bare minimum compliment, it's still a compliment. And that was, a uh, the first time I, I, I felt the phrase four more years rising in my throat. Um, when I was listening to the, watching that speech get live streamed. I'm just where you were. The last um, election, I just didn't vote for a presidential candidate at all. I was appalled at Trump, appalled at my choices. And um, time went by and I started having exactly that same reaction. I, I was, was seeing the judges coming through and I was thinking, maybe I got to, you know, cross my fingers behind my back and just, right. just do this. It's, it's gotten a little shakier in recent months. And I think it's accurate people who say he listens to those who affirm whatever he's doing and he just doesn't hear. He just blocks out and interprets as disloyalty and fires anybody who doesn't agree, who tries to show him another angle on something. He's, uh, he's incapable of hearing it. He's a very strange person. Yes. I think that's an accurate way of putting it for sure. Um, so we've got the bear on a chain as far as the pro-life cause is concerned, so I'm still open in November. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I wanted to go over a couple of questions that we were we were just going to discuss to really start uh, peeling away some of the layers. One of the one of the questions we were going to discuss, which is really interesting because this should um, this should uh, be very interesting for some people, is you've you've said that uh, pro-lifers have inadvertently made unwed pregnancy more acceptable and have helped pregnant women rely on public assistance. Um, and so you noted that ideally people depend on family members and ideally fathers stay with mothers and protect and provide with them. So this is sort of the eternal debate now surrounding um, if we discourage out of wedlock pregnancy, which we should, especially if you're Christians, that's just a, that's just a, a foundational moral belief, um, especially for the good of the child, if, if for nobody else. Um, and then at the same time, there's the belief that the culture of the shame culture that existed before contributed to women sort of seeking, sneaking off and having abortions. Now, both of those things are true. And so it feels to some degree as if this is a Gordian knot. You don't want to say, oh, it's no big deal at all, um, because it's obviously a big deal. At the same time, um, you also don't want to create the impression that 
well, if you do this, this is terrible. Your life is totally destroyed. You're going to be stigmatized. So what is what is the middle way in your view? Boy, I wish I knew. You know, that's a beautiful question. Um, I, I did find it to be something of a Gordian, Gordian knot. But as I said, I think there are things pro-lifers have done that have made it worse. Okay. Uh, back in, yeah, in 1994, I published a book called Real Choices. I should grab it off the shelf. Maybe some people would recognize the cover. And um, my goal was to find out what, what is it that pro-life pregnancy centers really need? Because right. people are donating lots and lots of diapers. But is that what they need? What do they need? And what do women coming in say that they need? You know, where are the, where are the gaps? So I thought I would write a book that would be aimed at answering that question, at discovering what pregnant women are needing. And one of the things I did was I, I wrote up a big uh, survey and I sent it to all the pregnancy care centers that I could reach back in 1994, asking, you know, what are, what are your major needs? What do women say they need? And then secondly, I interviewed post-abortion women all over the country. And I was able to ask them, tell me your story first, and then was there anything anyone could have done right. at that time to enable you to continue the pregnancy? And um, it, it, was, it was confusing. I, um, I found that the thing that pregnancy care centers said they needed more than anything else on this 50-item survey was they needed a better way to talk about adoption. Mm. So that kind of comes out of left field. You know, you're not thinking about that, but they're looking at the child. They, they want that child to have a good life, and they feel stripped of alternatives. They feel like um, the guy might come in with the woman, he might not. The woman is telling stories about how he treats her. And pregnancy care volunteers can get more and more indignant at the way women are treating men. And they can become more and more anti-male and they can treat as a self-fulfilling prophecy the fact that these guys just want to use you and they want to walk away they hear some terrible stories yeah it's very easy it's a very easy thing to start thinking in this movement very easy very easy unfortunately and as you said god's plan is that the father of the child would stand alongside the mother and two biological parents is the best and two Adoptive parents married to each other, that is great as well. Those are wonderful things to do. Single mom is not so great. And pregnancy centers felt like if we could somehow persuade her that adoption was really the best thing for herself and the child. But women really don't want to do that. Um, a, a pregnancy care director explained to me that to the woman, um, placing the child for adoption feels like abandoning the child. It's like releasing the child to the winds and you have no idea what's going to happen next. And um, even if it's an open adoption and you can visit every once in a while, it's, the child is still not under your control anymore. Right. Um, there, were, there were black women who thought that these white people want to adopt the babies to make slaves out of them. I mean, they're, they're a terrible concept. So women would think adoption is the worst choice. Abortion at least push the, pushes the rewind button and it gets me back to before this baby existed. One post-abortion woman said, I prayed and I said, God, when I'm ready, send me back this same baby. You know, she knew that was crazy thinking. But right. women will think that way. Adoption's the worst, you know, and then the best looks like single parenting. So pregnancy centers get to be, that's most of what they do for most of these single women is help set them up 
on welfare, help them find a place to live, enable single parenting, and then it just backfires. It, it is a difficult problem to solve, but I, I did want to explain a little bit more what some of the factors are. I should say also, um, what pregnancy care centers wanted was a better way to present adoption. What, what the women told me when they said the reason I had the abortion, what I needed, the reason they had the abortion was not needing a place to live or getting set up for welfare or any of that. It was that there was somebody telling them that they ought to have the abortion. Right. In, in most cases, most of the time, it was the father of the child. Sometimes these were married women. Um, two of the women that I interviewed said that they were lying on the abortion table and praying that the father of the child would burst through the doors and say, stop, I changed my mind. So it brings into question how much this actually is the woman's choice many right. times. Right. So um, what they told me was, uh, they didn't say I needed material support. Some of them said, I knew where I could get that. I knew where the pregnancy center was. It was that it was a person telling her she should do this, pushing her in that direction. She said, what I needed was a person. I needed one person who would stand by me and give me that moral support and that strength. I needed friendship. A pregnant woman feels so isolated. And as one person said, when, when I was pregnant, everybody was saying to me, I'll be there for you if you have the abortion. And nobody said, I'll be there for you if you have the baby. Right. So it's that longing for one person. And pregnancy centers, of course, do that magnificently, purely through volunteers in many places. Now, one of the things I was going to ask you based on uh, this study that you'd gone through is because one of the issues I've seen with a lot of with a lot of pro-life messaging is that it simply does not take into account the reality that the people that the women are going to be actually experiencing. So there's a lot of pictures of, you know, a beautiful pregnant woman cradling her swollen belly or, you know, a beautiful family where the father and the mother are sort of like holding the baby in between them with radiant smiles. And in my experience in pro-life activism of the people that that you meet on the streets, uh, the people that you persuade not to have an abortion, you, you you seek help for them. That is not the experience of almost anybody. Um, it, she She's not going to feel like a, a beautiful, pregnant, radiant person by and large. She often is not going to get the help. And, and I have I have two children. And the like when you see how vulnerable somebody is during a pregnancy and then you imagine that person doing it entirely by themselves, that is extremely daunting. Um, the two people should be there for the pregnancy, not just for the the, the childbirth and the, and the baby afterwards, right? Um, there there should be somebody there all along, and so I often feel like the pro life movement misfires a little bit when we we say, "Well, look how beautiful this thing is." That's not the thing they're going to get if if they have the baby. And one of the other things that I think people don't consider as much is a beautiful book by by Michael Doherty. Um, he writes the National Review. It's called "My Father Left Me Ireland," and he talks about how. Um, so he came into existence through a, through a love affair his mother had with 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 a guy in Ireland. That's the title of the book. Anyways, he talks about his realization later in life that his mother kind of sacrificed her life for him because he was one of the main reasons she never was able to get married again. Because suddenly the presence of this child meant, well, she was, of course, straining every guy she met through. Well, how does he relate to my kid? Is he going to be a good dad? All those sorts of things. And he had to 
the guy had to decide, well, am I up for raising another man's child? This man is going to be periodically showing up and also wanting to visit. It's not really my family. I'm sharing it with somebody else. Um, and his description of how she sort of gave up the rest of her life when she decided to have him, it really struck me because it's something we don't often kind of consider that the presence of that child is sort of eliminating for a lot of women their romantic interests later on. And, and the same thing for a guy, but more often the woman. And that, again, is, is a very difficult thing. How do you persuade somebody that a child is worth potentially sacrificing all of those things that you want and even sacrificing things that are, that are, that are good to want? Or there's nothing wrong with wanting to have all of that, but to have a baby is, is pr- potentially going to prevent you from having that. So I, I've just thought a lot that a lot of our, a lot of our messaging, um, it presents the lives that many of us in the pro-life movement have, ha- have and have been blessed with, right? We're married with kids and, uh, and of course there's plenty of exceptions, but you, you, you know what I mean? What do you think of that? Yeah. I, um, it, it, I think what we're dancing around is the sexual revolution. That that's right. what we're really up against, because women are not willing to stop having sex outside of marriage. They well, don't believe in waiting, are. you know, for that for that right guy. And in fact, the um, boy, yeah, as you say, they go through all this and they don't have that beautiful experience. But I think the fantasy somehow remains that it's going to happen and it's going right. to be theirs. Uh, and I remember reading a, a woman was interviewed in the Washington Post years ago. She had three children by three different fathers and they'd asked her if she planned to get married and she said well maybe one day i'll meet the right guy and i'll settle down and it was as if the fact that she already had three kids it didn't occur to her that makes it a lot harder to meet the right guy right so there's this fantasy thinking going on and an absolute refusal to live in chastity um that's just like non-negotiable in our culture and what we have to counter that, our abstinence education. I'm still a person who uses the word purity. I think purity is wonderful. And uh, as an Eastern Orthodox Christian, as a Catholic Christian, we know how the, the beautiful hymns about the Virgin Mary, awed by the beauty of your chastity, the angel Gabriel stood amazed, is, is the beginning of one of our Orthodox hymns, the purity. I, I always say, if you walk through Whole Foods, do you ever see the word pure? You know, it's on every other product. Yeah. We know what purity means. When you talk about the environment, do you know what purity means? We all do. We all love it. And we should not let that word be taken from us. I think that that is the strong appeal to chastity, but it's exploded in our age. There's no way to use it. Well, the the difficulty with, so I agree with your analysis completely. We've had Mary Aberstadt on the podcast a couple of times to talk about various aspects um, of the sexual revolution. The difficulty is back to the, the Gordian, not what we were discussing, is, is it is so difficult in a very practical sense to discourage single motherhood without essentially saying um, it should be avoided at all costs, one of those costs being abortion. What, like, we live in this reality now where, look, I, Obviously, chastity is possible. We live in this bizarre day and age where everything is possible but that, right? We can change the climate and end global poverty, but we can't expect kids to keep their pants on. Um, and and, and, and like, ju- it was like the day before yesterday, historically speaking, where this was the broad norm. So it's, it, it's, not like, it's not like it hasn't been done before. It's not like this is the only society that's ever existed. We do have several centuries of, of success in that regard to point towards. 
But in the absence of any solution besides this simply running out of steam, um, is there sort of any way the pro-life movement can thread that needle? Because it's difficult to sort of combine it. In fact, the sexual revolution is making people more hostile uh, to any sort of message. It's been, it's really metastasized just in the last... I wrote a book in 2016 um, on the sexual revolution, and, and the number of updates that I would have to include four years later are, are just staggering. It, like the, the rate at which is the, this is going... Um, I know a journalist who said, I feel like I'm a thousand years old because that's usually how long it takes for these for these changes to occur. Do you have any sort of idea based on your years of 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 reporting on the sexual revolution, covering this issue of how pro-lifers can can thread that needle? By being examples, primarily by being examples in our own lives, living living chastely in marriage and out of marriage and by raising good, happy families. It is an example that people notice. When the kids go over to play at their friend's house and it's a Christian home, they notice that, and boy, do they yearn for a father. Children are just built that way. They know they need a father, and um, there's no substitute for that. The guys who come and go month to month, it's no substitute for that, and not safe. So I think it's very hard to talk about this, Mm-hmm. You know, as I was saying, if you use the word purity, they shoot you down. But mm-hmm. purity, the beauty of purity is the core. And there's never before five years ago that a Christian culture that did not understand the power of sexual purity, the spiritual power that gives you. And, and not only in Christianity, many other religions as well. I, I think I think the reason, though, that we shy away from the reason we shy away from the term purity is not because of the word itself. It's because it's associated now with purity culture, which was more more of like like the Josh Harris I kiss dating goodbye thing. Like purity was something um, that you did through your actions, and if you made a mistake, therefore you could no longer be pure. Right? The analogies of the chewed up gum and stuff like that. Like I think most people would agree that purity is a beautiful word, um, but. But I think it was the idea that purity was something you earned rather than something you were given. Uh, yeah, it, it's become a confused word because I think when people hear the word purity, they think purity culture, which is a very specific sort of uh, a subculture that's ruined ruined a very good word, which, again, as you pointed out, in other contexts, we still recognize the value of. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, boy, you can't underestimate how completely the sexual revolution is is sweeping over us like tsunamis over and over again in every context. And um, it's very hard to fight against that, even with true purity. It's very hard to understand how that can be beautiful because it's a subtle thing. It's a very delicate thing. And um, what can we do except actually live what we profess to believe? I do hear Christians, you know, getting, getting divorced, having affairs, we never did that 50 years ago, or very rarely, and we weren't proud of it. We didn't make it public. Um, let's do a better job of living what we believe. I think that may be the best thing we can do now, because rational discourse is impossible. <laughs> well, so since we've brushed the rational discourse uh, thing out of the way, um, I, I did have a, a, another question for you because I thought it, uh, it might be interesting. You you mentioned uh, here in the, in the questions that we we had discussed earlier, um, the fact that it's it's so easy to, to despise men these days, and it's not just I, I it's not just in the context of abortion, although it's certainly true. I like I've talked to so 
So many girls I've talked to about abortion on campus, on the streets, and the response, one of the things they always throw at pro-lifers is, well, I can't do this by myself. That is the assumption that they're going to have to, right? It's not even a consideration on the table that the guy might stick around and take care of his own kid. Um, But worse than that now is because uh, pornography has sort of finished off everybody left standing. And that's one of the difficulties as well. As the sexual revolution, you, it, used to, it used to be a lot more of a conscious choice to opt in or opt out. And now with, with smartphones and tablets and, and, and the rates of, of porn usage among males approaching uh, 86% uh, in North America. Um, one of the things I, I, I wanted to ask you is just what I hear so often from girls, and they're right, that even if you follow all the rules and even if you do all the right things, there aren't a lot of good guys out there that are available to get married and create the sort of, of, of family that you're referring to. Um, a lot of them are in this, in this stage of sort of arrested development because they struggle with porn from, you know, so well, age 10 at some point, but, but even if, even if it starts somewhat later all the way through university. And it seems like a lot of guys spend the ages of 20 to 28 kind of figuring themselves out, whereas a lot of the girls figure themselves out a lot quicker. And it is very, very difficult. Like, I can say this fairly bluntly because it's everybody can see it on our, on our website or on our Facebook page. Uh, if you look at the pro-life movement, the, the, the number of girls to guys is just crazy. And these are, these are beautiful, intelligent, passionate girls who are fighting for the right thing. Um, and, and a lot of them are single. And it's, it's not... Like in like fifty years ago, there's no way any of them would be single. But in today's day and age, you have you know a lot of guys who just aren't cut out for that, and I think that's probably very disheartening for a lot of people when they want it. They're doing all the right things. They're doing what their faith calls them to do, um, and at the same time, the sexual revolution has now so thoroughly infiltrated the church that that doesn't feel like an option either. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Um... Uh, maybe 10 years ago, I don't remember when exactly, I was asked to do a commencement speech at a fancy prep school on Long Island. And when I arrived, um, there was a lot of kind of muttering and concern going around. And the president told me that a male student had tried to commit suicide that morning. Mm. And um, I, I said, you know, I was, I was horrified, of course. And I responded to, you know, well, it, how could such a thing happen? Does this does this happen very often? I mean, and um, how about it, the, the girls here? Do, are the girls led to despair and suicide? He said, no, the girls thrive. The girls are great. If there's a problem with a student, it's with one of the boys. And so I sat in the audience during commencement, and everybody who walked across the stage to get an award or to give a speech was female. We have done a great job of reinforcing to girls, you're great, you can do anything, strive for the stars, and you can look at the t-shirts in Walmart. All the girls' t-shirts are about, you can be president, you can do anything. Mm-hmm. And the boys' t-shirts are about, I'm a T-Rex, I break things. Yeah, or do keg stands, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, we have we have uh, adopted deeply into our culture. Um, uh, uh, a love of maligning men, insulting them. And men are good sports. I think it began because men insult each other. You know, they usually, they handle an insult very well and they toss it right back. But it's become just such a deep groove of insult and diminishment and never any 
idea of what a positive role for a young man could be. Um, a friend of mine not long ago, earlier this week, was saying that his son graduated, got a great degree from, from college, is now in graduate school, and he, he ended up by saying, and he's been living in my basement for five years. And he said 40% of men in that generation just don't know how to interact socially. They don't know what to say to a boy. They don't have friends. They don't have any social skills. They just spend all their time in the basement. That's a lot. 40% of the men are just, we're not, men deserve praise. Men should be praised. They should be honored for what they do. When women knock down men, we are undermining our defense against bad men. We need good men because they're always going to be bad men. But men, men also like one of the one of the again. There's so many Gordian knots here because the sexual revolution has has twisted so many things. But men also have to deserve the praise that they get. And one of the difficulties, and again, this is due to family breakdown. So kids get babysat by screens, and so screens sort of replace a lot of different things. And I think one of the tough things for guys is that screens have replaced the two things that men were willing to expend a lot of physical effort on, traditionally speaking. So video games have given them that adrenaline surge that satisfaction that they would have had from actually going out and accomplishing something, from feeling like a warrior and fighting for something. And porn has replaced the other thing they put a lot of effort into, which was pursuing courting and marrying a girl. So the, the two, two of the main primal drivers uh, that, that made men successful are being replaced by a junk version of it, but still, like, like the pleasure factor is still there. It just it doesn't actually accomplish anything. So men are being immobilized by screens and basements are filled with them. And so again, I feel like we're in this really tough situation where men do need to feel praised and affirmed in order to try even harder, especially by females, which shouldn't be a secret to anybody. But then on the other side, they actually have to do something that makes them worthy of praise to begin with because, A, I think most men know when they're being pandered to uh, and, and when they're being they're be, or, uh, patronized, I think is a better word. Um and then you've got all these screens and stuff that, that ensure a lot of men aren't doing anything useful or praiseworthy. So again, we're in this really tough scenario where you're not sure exactly. Um, they, they did a poll. Charles Murray did a poll a while ago uh, on, on, on the difference between, between men then and men now. And, and the, the percentage of men who had ever had a job that made them hurt at the end of the day was vanishingly low. Um, and it was crazy to me that, that, like, what do you mean you've never had a job where you heard at the end of the day, right? What did you do? And, and the answer is not almost nothing for a lot of people. Hmm. Gosh. Yeah. So they, if they have a job, their job is one that is mostly mental, that they can do on a keyboard. And um, it, it's not physically demanding, that's for sure. I, I agree with you. I, men need to do something that is worthy of admiration so that it won't be pandering. As you said, um, but boy, have we gotten rid of all those jobs? Did all those jobs go overseas? Everybody seems to think the goal of life is to go to college and sit at a keyboard right. all day and type. And um, there's a wonderful moment in Tom Wolfe's book, A Man in Full, where the um, man has lost his job and he has to find one. And he learns that it's all got to be fingers on keyboards. And his masculine hands are too big for the keyboard. He can't use the keyboard well, not as well as women can. It's a poignant moment. Um, is this world 
set or arranged for men? Is it a, is it a world that welcomes men anymore? So many things have gone wrong. And as you say, a Gordian knot, where there are all these factors coming in and porn is destroying brains. Yeah, it's push and pull. Porn is the number one enemy of, of, of a lot of these podcasts because I think porn is ruining everything. Yes, yes. And I have, um, today is the anniversary, the birthday of my very first grandchild. Mm. He's 20 years old today. I have 14 grandchildren. I had seven boys and seven girls and they go all stair steps down to three years old. And it's my little girls that I fear for that. If I take them out to see a Pixar movie in the movie theater, I am so aware that every man that we pass, every man who hands us a ticket or a Coke um, can have a brain that is full of horrible images, increasingly horrible images. Who are these girls going to grow up to marry? Who are they going to grow up to date? As, as porn leads inexorably into violence, yeah. how, how, will there be any men that will not beat them when they're married? It's a horrifying thing. And that is so much the most important problem that we face. You know, I suppose, ironically, you know, if you want a bitter joke, um, it would be that why is the abortion rate going down? You know, the good news, you know, I always say thanks to pregnancy care centers. I think they deserve a lot of the, a lot of the reward for that. But it's also porn. It's also living with screens in your basement. As you say, get your soldier impulse out with the games and your sexual impulse out with the porn. And um, so women aren't getting pregnant as much. Terrible irony there. So you've been you've been covering um, well you've you've been covering these issues for longer than I've been alive. I was born in, in, in 1988. And so one of the questions I had is from, from your macro view, your Zumo view, I know because I've read enough of your stuff that, that you don't think things are getting any better. I don't know uh, anybody who, who, who does. Um, there, there are a few uh, apocalyptic optimists um, who I think are relying more on faith and the evidence at hand. Um, but I guess as a final closing question, and we can take as long as we want with this one, where do you think things are headed and what do you think is necessary for things to change? Are you a Rod Dreher Benedict option sort of person? Are you a Ross Duzit Wilberforce option sort of person? Where, where would you fall and, and what is your analysis of our current moment? I'd bear, very much be a Benedict option person. Rod Dreher is about my best friend outside my family and we're emailing very frequently. I admire him very much and agree with him about almost everything. I guess you're both Orthodox. I should have thought of that. Yeah, that's that's true too. Yeah, <laughs> um, he wasn't. He was Catholic when I met him 27 years ago, I guess, and we just immediately hit it off. My sons would say he's the son she never had. <laughs> 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 but um, where I find hope, and I've never heard Rod say this, um, I think we are headed for a time where it will be harder for Christians to get into the professions that as yeah. that is all taken over by the elites, there just won't be a way to do it. You will not, you can finish medical school and have a huge bill and not be able to get licensed to practice. So we'll be going into different forms of work, manual work. And that brings us back to the first century, doesn't it? I mean, most of the converts to Christianity were from the lower classes, even slaves. And I think what we need to do is begin to learn how to tell our stories practice telling our conversion stories, 
practice telling our little miracle stories because the Lord will arrange opportunities for you. Um, I, I, I picture a, a, a movie star in her kitchen in Beverly Hills, you know, weeping over something that happened. And the maid who's cleaning the breakfast dishes turns to her and says, do you know Jesus Christ? Because I do. And here's how Jesus saved me. Um, there are going to be opportunities to tell our stories. And I think that's what the first Christians did. They, they said the good news. They told the good news. Um, and that can over, we need another way of overturning the culture from underneath, um, just as porn apparently has done that in our own culture. Um, we're going to have to go back to the very grassroots. And I think the most precious thing we have, I, and I would advise people, think about it. If I was to ask you, tell me a, a story about a time when God really blessed you. And then I, I use the old trick of saying, okay, now you have to tell somebody but you can say, there was this lady I saw on a podcast, and she told me I have to tell somebody. And so go to one of your friends who's not a Christian and say, I'm really embarrassed, but can I tell you this story? Because she said I ought to tell somebody. And practice, practice, practice. Tell your story. Spread it around. And I believe the Lord can have resurrection in our culture that way. It'll take time. But that's where my hope is. I should have I should have assumed that a writer was going to say storytelling was the way out of the mess. Um, it's interesting you bring out the the elites the elites blocking people out of out of professions because I, I, how long ago was this now? Five years ago when I was in Hungary, I was in Budapest, and we uh, we hired somebody a university student to take us on a, like a little tour just around the city center or whatever. And I remember her saying that she was the first member of her family who went to college. Because under communism, she said, uh, you could be, uh, this line has always stuck with me, and I used it in one of my books. She said, uh, you could be faithful or you could be successful, but you had to pick. So if you were baptized, you couldn't go to university. And she says, it's not like they came to your church and dragged you off and threw you in a camp or, or something like that. But she's like, it was just a very simple choice. You can be faithful or you can be successful. And you had to pick which one. And that seems more like the sort of soft totalitarianism we're headed towards than the than the, the, the gulag option that some people talk about. And we underestimate how powerful peer pressure is. We're, we're herd animals, human beings, and it matters greatly to us what our peers and our comrades think of us. And if we're going to be despised and mocked, that's intensely painful. I heard a story, a similar one from communist Romania, perhaps I've forgotten where, uh, where but they had dragged off to the gulag a young woman, and they went to her friend, and her friend said, I will be brave, I will be strong. And they said to her, you know your friend, Christina? You should see what her complexion looks like now. She's lost so, so much weight, she's so scrawny. Her face is full of lines. You should see what she looks like. And that was enough to turn this woman against standing up for her faith. So there are all kinds of pressures out there. We'll have to be very strong to face. But God gives us strength. Uh, a Ugandan pastor, Bishop, actually told me when the Idi Amin persecution came and people were dying for their faith, he said, before the persecution, we were like Christians anywhere. But when it began, God poured out on us so much love for each other that it gave us strength to go through this we never had before. So there are there are gifts that God will give us when the time comes. 
the, the daddy holds on to the train ticket until you're ready to get on the train. He'll give it to us when we need it. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for having this discussion. I'd love to have you on again. Sure. Sure thing, Jonathan. Glad to be with you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Frederica Matthews Green, an American Orthodox writer. You can find more of our podcasts over at lifesightnews.com. If you liked this interview, you should like the YouTube video and you can subscribe to the YouTube channel. This airs on both the LifeSite News YouTube channel as well as the Van Maren Show channel. Thanks so much for joining us. And if you want to check out more commentary again, head over to lifesightnews.com. Thanks for joining us this week and we hope you'll join us again next week.